Thank you for listening to audio from Century Baptist Church. To connect with us, visit our website, centurybaptist.org, or download the Century Baptist Church app. Father, we, uh, we acknowledge that today. We've been singing about it all morning. We pray that you would let the words on a screen that, that we saw with our eyes, that we sang with our mouths, God, would dwell deep within our hearts as we today talk about this foundational truth of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so it's in uh, these next m- minutes, God, these moments that we unpack your word, uh, that we ask you to do an incredible work in each and every one of us. And so, so we know you're here, God, we just, we just tell you that you're welcome. And you are welcome to do whatever it is that you desire to do in our hearts. So, God, would you show us who you are? Would you um, draw us to repentance? Whatever it is that, that, that you need us to do, um, you're welcome to do it, God. We love you. We praise you. Amen. You could have a seat. Hey, thanks for being here today, everybody. I know it's really nice out, uh, and uh, there's a lot of day ahead of us. I pray that the message today would be... Uh, one that 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 sinks deep, uh, as I said, w- with with you. Um, and my prayer has, has been not not because of any type of eloquence that I may or may not have, um, but that God would would do a great work because I believe that this is one of the most. As we've been studying the book of Matthew and Jesus' life and his ministry, his relationships with people, his miracles and his teachings, that that we get to this point here in Matthew 16 that really becomes a pivotal, not just a pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry that will now send us and, uh, on a trajectory of, of Jesus' interaction with the disciples, but leading to Jerusalem where he will give up his life uh, for our sins and be resurrected, uh, and then the great commission over each and every one of us. Um, but it's a foundational truth that we all need to know and understand here today that we're going to get into uh, in uh, much of ancient times as well as early years of our own country, maybe even nowadays somewhat, when a building project would come along and it was time to begin, the most important thing that would take place uh, was the laying of the cornerstone, the setting of that stone, because it was that stone. How This is uh, actually a, a picture of uh, the corner of the western wall in the temple, the temple wall in Jerusalem. Massive stones uh, weighed uh, tons uh, of, uh, of pounds, uh, but cut perfectly. There, it, w- it was said that, that King Herod, as he uh, rebuilt the temple, would walk through these stones that were cut, and as they were set and set on top of each other, that he would actually pull a hair out of his head, and if he could fit a hair in between uh, the cornerstone and the stone on top of it, he would make them destroy it all and do it all over again. The cornerstone was everything because it, it laid the foundation and set the trajectory of the direction of the rest of the building. All the stones stacked on top of it. If the cornerstone wasn't level, the, the top of the wall wasn't going to be level. And it needed to be right. So the cornerstone was, as I said, everything. Not only that, but a lot of times in... in um, in ancient, the ancient world, uh, because of the, such an Im- important moment of the setting of that cornerstone, there's usually some type of a celebration, a worship service that would take place. Sacrifices that would be made and the blood of that sacrifice poured on top of that stone in pagan cultures, pleading for the gods to bless all that would take place within uh, that building. 
There were sometimes they would take um, different items from the culture of that day, put them inside of that cornerstone, so that when cultures came generations later, maybe a building fell down and they found that stone, they'd be able to tell what was, what was this building all about? Who were the people that put it together? Cornerstone was important. Our passage today doesn't mention a cornerstone, but I, I want us to know that, that there is a cornerstone statement and belief that sets the traje- trajectory of our lives, how we live, who we worship, our, our, our own identity, that all comes from Jesus Christ. And so if you would, let's go to Matthew chapter 16. I want to read verses 13 through 20. I had a, a friend years ago, he passed away. He was also one of my seminary professors. His name was Randy Reese. And he would describe a text like this as a chunky monkey, meaning that there's a lot to it. And so we got a lot of work to get into this today. Uh, but this is what it says. If you can, if you're willing, if you're able, let, let's stand and honor the reading of the word. This is uh, what Matthew writes. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. That's God's word. You can have a seat. I love this text, not only for what it is that we're going to get into, the, the, the meat of all of it, um, but I'm such a fan of the way that Jesus taught. His illustrations were incredible, and I believe that Caesarea Philippi was the illustration that he used. It's a long way to go, 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It's a long way to go uh, to, tell, uh, 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 to give an illustration, to, to speak a truth. But there's impact behind it. That's why I love, and I always tell people, when you're reading through Scripture, when you come across a city, when you come across a name, dig a little bit deeper. Because there's usually a purpose and a reason. It's not just a, well, he just did something somewhere. It doesn't really matter. Let's get to it. Where Jesus uh, has this conversation with the disciples actually sets the stage for the truth that he proclaims. It really kind of highlights it. Caesarea Philippi, as I said, 25 miles north. So Jesus had left the western side of the Sea of Galilee. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, uh, where the Pharisees, the Sadducees, were trying to trap him. They wanted him dead. They want to get him, get rid of him because he's kind of upending their authority and their life. He knows that they're out to get him, and he, Jesus knows full well what his end on this earth will be. Right? He, he knows uh, all of the prophecy about himself. He knows why he came. He left the glory of heaven to come and to give up his life. And it just wasn't time yet. His time on earth had not been completed, fulfilled, ministry uh, completed. So Jesus sails over to the east side of the Sea of Galilee to get away from 
the Jewish leaders that want him dead, and he goes to spend time among, as we talked about, the, the Gentiles, or according to the, the, the Jewish culture, the pagans, those that didn't follow after the one true God. So Jesus goes over there, and then not only does he go to the east side of the lake, but he now treks the disciples 25 miles up to this city of Caesarea Philippi. It's at the foot of Mount Hermon. It's in the Golan Heights. It would be where we would say today is on the border of Syria and Lebanon. But long, far away uh, from Jesus' home. Um, Caesarea Philippi, uh, for centuries, even in Jesus' day, was known as one of the darkest places, they would say, on earth. One of the most uh, profound pagan um, worship sites that, that you could uh, come across. Um, in uh, about uh, 90 B.C., even before uh, Jesus was on the earth, uh, there was a temple that was set up there to the Greek god uh, Pan. And so even long before it even became that, we read about it uh, in the Old Testament. It was really close to the city of, of Dan, uh, we know there that um, in Joshua chapter 11 that the people of that region worshipped uh, Baal. In 1 Kings chapter 12, Jeroboam had set up a, a, a golden calf on the high places in that region. And it just continued to develop into this, this city of false gods. So I, I've got a, a little bit of an illustration there. Uh, this is what it looked like. It would have been close to Jesus' day. The temple that's on the left was for the temple uh, of the Greek god Pan. He was considered to be uh, the shepherd god. He was uh, the god of nature, the god of the forest, the god of the water. Um, the temple on the right was a temple for Zeus. And, and then in the rock faces over the years, there were a lot of kind of cutouts of a number, hundreds of smaller idols to other gods that were placed there. Whoever you worshipped, you could come there and you could maybe make yourself at home. And it wasn't just along this cliff or this rock face. It was throughout the whole area, the region, as our, as our passage says, in the district of Caesarea uh, Philippi. But needless to say, it was a location of temples to all of these false gods. And the interesting thing, the reason why this was such an important place to people is because water, water is life, and, and actually the Jordan River that flows uh, from down and into the Sea of Galilee and then the river continues down into the Dead Sea and that water from the Jordan River is used, really uh, brings water to the entire nation of Israel. And, and so it was all about fertility. And so the mouth of the Jordan River with the spring where the Jordan River actually begins is in a, a, a grotto behind the, the Temple of Pan. And, and so that's what it looks like today. And it's this huge cave, water down below, and this high cliff that stands above it. Now, because it was believed to be this place of, of fertility and life, you always, if you worship these false gods, you always wanted to please these gods. And so one of the, the ways in which the people would, would do this, to please the, the god Pan, because he was... He was fearful, half man, half goat, and, he, and, and uh, it wasn't just this cute little goat boy that played a flute on a tree stump. They feared him. It's where we actually get the word panic 
He was terrifying, and they, so they wanted to always um, uh, appease him. And one of the sickening ways that they would do it is that they would often go up high on this cliff, uh, and people with their family members or loved ones or their children, and they would throw them off the cliff and down into the waters of that grotto, and, and they would see if they would sink or if they would float, and if they would sink and disappear it was believed that the gods of the underworld who would make their home there in the winter, and that's the time that they would do this in the hopes that, that in the spring that they would have fertile land and, uh, and, and that their crops would produce, that if the, if the bodies would disappear, then the gods of the underworld were pleased. And that grotto right there, that region of Caesarea Philippi became known as the gate of Hades, the gates of hell. And, and so your, your job, your task, your role was to make sure that you just kept the gods pleased all the time. You didn't ever want to anger them. And it was here, it was here that Jesus decides that this is the moment that he's going to ask the question of the disciples. Why not? Right? Why not let it be here that we, that we understand the foundation of who Jesus is? And this Christian life that we live and the, the commission that Jesus gave for his disciples, a great place for Jesus to ask the disciples about his identity as there they are standing and possibly hundreds of false gods that are there. And maybe some discussion about what's that one and what's that one and what's that one and who, who worships which one and what do they believe. And so Jesus just asked the question, hey, hey guys, uh, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man was a term that was first given, we find in the book of uh, Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13, where Daniel has this vision, says, There came one like a son of man, and to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all people's nations and languages will serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away, and his kingdom will never be destroyed. And from then on, people waited longed for. God's people were looking for who is this one? Who is the Son of Man that will come? Well, we get into the book of Matthew, and, and that's the term that, that Jesus used to describe himself more than anything else. He's making that proclamation, the Son of Man. If you look in the book of Mark and in the book of Luke, and their parallel telling of this narrative in Caesarea Philippi, uh, Jesus actually asked the question, guys, who do people say that I am? Who do others say that I am? Uh, I don't know about you, but that's not a question that I, I don't think I've ever asked it. Uh, we don't want to know, right? I, I don't ever go around, hey, what do people think of me? Right? I already know, right? I got social media. People let me know, right? I got email, uh, and I've got friends. And, and so they, they, they let me know. But Jesus says, hey, what do people think of me? What do people, who do people say that, that I am? Their response, uh, you can imagine, would probably be a little bit maybe uncomfortable, right? What do you think he's, is he, does he want the right answer? What, 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 are people, what are people saying? And so they just respond. He, he says that, that they say, some say you're John the Baptist. That comes from back in chapter 14, if you remember, after King Herod had beheaded John the Baptist, uh, and then Jesus shows up on the scene. Herod was terrified that, that Jesus was actually John the Baptist who'd come back to life. It was part, part of why now we find Jesus in the Gentile region. He's staying away from where his life 
could be threatened because his time has not yet come for him to give up his life. So some people, some people are saying that you are John the Baptist who'd come back to life. Some say that you are Elijah, the, the, great, the greatest prophet that Israel had ever seen. Uh, Elijah had done incredible miracles. And Jesus was, had done incredible miracles. Uh, Elijah, in the words that he was speaking, his, his teaching Jesus uh, the same way. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, says that Elijah would come before the, the great and terrible day of the Lord. People were, were waiting. If you remember, Elijah was taken up into heaven before his death. So it was believed to be that he also was going to return because he's still alive. And so they looked for him constantly. So some say that you're Elijah and others say that you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. In other words, everybody agrees that you are, you're important in some way. Uh, you speak with the voice of the Lord. So you're, you are probably uh, a really great prophet. That's what, that's what everybody is saying about you. Interesting thing is that hasn't changed today either. Take a look at, at any other religion. Religions that follow other gods, uh, that, that, that don't claim Jesus as God. But if you study and if you talk to them and if you ask people, well, what does your faith say about who Jesus is? If you talk to those of the Jewish faith, they would say he was a great teacher. If you would talk to someone of the Islamic faith, they would say, we believe that Jesus was a great prophet. Someone from the Baha'i faith would say, we believe that he is in some way a manifestation of God. Hindus believe that Jesus was one of many gods. Buddhists would say he was an incredibly enlightened man with a lot of great wisdom that we could learn from. Even the New Age movement would say that he was a great teacher. Incredible thing. None deny his existence. They just don't have a proper perspective of who he is. Who do people say that I am? You're, you're somebody great. That's what they're saying. You're somebody great that had, some, had an impact on the world. So then Jesus gets personal. And he just says, well, who do you guys say that I am? And the first to speak up, obviously, is always Peter, right? To which the other disciples are like, oh, here we go. Please say the right thing. Please say the right, right? And, and, and Peter does Jesus is saying, you guys have lived with me. You've watched me. You've collected the bread after my miracles. You've been there. So who do you say that I am? I have to believe the disciples had not forgotten uh, what Jesus had told them uh, earlier in chapter 10 as he was sending them out to, to do ministry in the region, the, the villages around Galilee, and he says, don't fear when you go out. I'll give you power to say what needs to be said. But don't fear the people that are naysayers. Don't feel, fear the negative people, the people that reject you. You just keep preaching what it is that I've told you to preach. And he tells them, he says, what I, what I tell you in private, in other words, what I've told you, you go out in public and you just proclaim it loudly. Everybody who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. So, who do you say that I am? Who, do you, who are you acknowledge 
that I am. And Peter speaks up and, and maybe, I don't know, for the first time, what comes out of his mouth is 100% correct. He nails it. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is a statement that he doesn't say, I think you are, or we've been talking. He just says, you are. I know you are. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You're the Messiah. You're the one that has been sent from God, the one that's been promised to us that would come and would take away the sins of the world. You're the one that would come and has promised that you would mend the gap between us and God the Father because of our sin, that you would take it upon yourself. We know who you are. You are the Christ. And he says, the Son of the living God. What a, what a great location for Peter to say that. Right here we are in the midst of all of these temples, these false, dead, unseen, unknowable gods. But you're the Son of the one true, the living God. The one that truly gives us life. The one that brings life to this land that we live in and brings life to our hearts. And Jesus responds to Peter. <clears throat> I got to imagine that he probably looked at him with a huge smile. Right? And, and he, he just says, Peter, you're blessed. Blessed are you. From what you. Not because of what he said, but Jesus goes on to say, you are blessed because, because if it was left up to you, uh, just a, a mere human, you would have gotten this wrong. You're blessed because... God the Father has given you the wisdom to be able to see it, to understand it, and proclaim it. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Jesus is just saying, Peter said, I know who you are. You're the son of the living God. And he goes, well, blessed are you, son of Jonah. Jonas, John was Peter's father's name. He says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. Flesh and blood was a term that, that uh, the Jewish rabbis would use to to describe somebody in their, in their moments of human weakness. And Jesus is, that's what he's stating. He's like, this didn't come to you in, in, a, in a moment of just human understanding under your own knowledge. It's, it's greater. This is bigger than this. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 describes flesh and blood as natural man. He says spiritual things are not understandable to man, right? They're the, the, the mind of God, the things of God are too big for us to understand. We will always think that it's folly, but Jesus says you're blessed. Why? Because the Father in heaven has chosen to reveal this to you. The wisdom that you have, the ability to, to be able to process and the knowledge and to see who I truly am, you only have that because God has allowed that to take place in you. It reemphasizes what what Jesus prayed and back in chapter 11, verse 25, as he's praying and he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, that, that you're the one that reveals all of these things, not to the wise, but to the little children. No one knows the Son except the Father and those he chooses to reveal him to. Isn't that encouraging to us? What does that, what does that do for you if you know Jesus? and you understand salvation and who Jesus is, and you've received it into your life, it's a gift that's been given to you by God because left to yourself, left to myself, right? If I'm going to try to figure out life, I'm going to try to figure out how to do this thing, I'm going to think that it looks exactly like this world that we're living in. 
I need more. I got to try harder. I got to do better stuff. I got to try to please everybody and God, and I'll take whatever it is that's out there. And that's all folly unless God gives you wisdom to truly understand and to know what it is that he's trying to, to tell us. I don't know about you, but, but for myself, who oftentimes just feels so small and at times invisible and, and, and low, right? To think that God would reveal himself, he would take the time, he would see me in this entire world, he would care enough to reveal to me the truths that, that he would want me to know so that I could follow him. And he does it for each and every one of us. So that's why we praise him. That's why we worship him. You see us, God. I've got value to you. You are Peter. Blessed are you. You are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Now, now let me just say this. this. That statement is one of the most multi-interpreted, misinterpreted statements that Jesus had ever given. It's created religions based on how people interpret it. It's caused people of faith to rise and fall based on how it's interpreted. So I, I, I want to do this very carefully I want to try to do it as clearly as I possibly can uh, through the study that, that I've made as well as me studying the study of others. But in John chapter 1, verse 42, so early on in Jesus' calling of Peter, uh, his name was Simon. Simon, that was his name, and Jesus calls him to come and follow him. And he says, I'm going to change your name. You're not, no longer going to be Simon, but you're now no, you're going to be uh, Cephas. And that's the Aramaic word for rock. Um, and because Simon just means the one who the one who hears, but Jesus knows he's going to be investing in a guy who doesn't just want him to hear; he wants him to go out and to do something uh, about this. But Peter, we know, is going to need some confidence as well, right? So Jesus says, "I'm I'm giving you a new name. It's the, when you were given a new name or a name by your family, this is what you're going to live into. So I call you uh, the rock or a stone." If it's translated into Greek, that the word Cephas, it actually means a, a small stone, a, a movable stone. But you're, you're a rock. Matthew, when he speaks this, he writes in Greek. We studied that a lot. When he, when he makes this statement in, that, that Jesus makes, and Matthew writes it down, uh, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Um, as Matthew writes it in, in the Greek, it's two different words. You are uh, Peter, uh, Petros, uh, and on this Petra, I will build my church. Petros, masculine, it's what you'd give as a name to a man. Petra is feminine. You would never use a, a feminine word to describe uh, a man in the Greek language. And so we know that it's two separate words. What is Jesus saying? You are, you are the small rock. And on the, on the Petra, I will build my church. Petra means a large, immovable. Uh, at times, it could mean a, a cliff made up of a stack of immovable rocks or stone. But that's the whole point behind it. It's a foundation that's so much bigger. When Jesus 
It says, uh, the, it talks about the wise men who built this house upon the rock. The word Petra is used. It's not this idea of just a good concrete slab. It is a mountain of stone. And that's what we build our lives on because the foundation that we have, the Petra, the rock, is Jesus Christ himself, is the truth of who he is. Some have said, well, Jesus spoke Aramaic and they only have one word for rock, Sifa, and so that's what Jesus would have said. But there's intention as to why Matthew writes it down in Greek the way that he did. Because that was Jesus' intention. You are Peter, you are a rock, but it's on this rock that I will build uh, my church. On what you just spoke, what you just said, the statement that you just made. Peter is not the rock on which the church will be built. Yes, he and the other disciples will take up the mantle and the, the commission that God gave him, and they will go out and they will proclaim the truth just like each and every one of us. But the foundation that Jesus is talking about, this immovable stone, is the statement that Peter just made. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, it's on this rock that I'm going to build my church. And, and, and church is, is not this building. It's not even this one community of believers on this rock I will build my church is all believers everywhere over all of time. It's those of us that are here today, everybody who's watching online, if you know Jesus Christ, if you've made that proclamation that you understand Him as the Savior of the world, it's the thousands, hundreds of thousands of other community of believers that are meeting all over the world today. Now, there are a number of different communities because there are just some things that we don't agree on. A lot of people would say those that major on the minors. But the thing that makes us the, the, the ecclesia, the gathering of believers, the community that Jesus never meant for the church to be an institution. Never. It was meant to be the one thing that draws us together is what we believe about who He is and what it is that He's done for us. The one true foundational belief that Jesus is the Son of God, the promised Savior that takes away the sins of the world. It's the one true, immovable, unshakable statement that identifies us, Christ's church, that He has built. It's all about Him. And He says, and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Think about that. There they stand in Caesarea Philippi. Maybe, we don't know where this took place. I like to think that there they were up on top of that massive cliff, the immovable rock, where Jesus makes this statement and they look down and here is the pool of Pan or known as the Gate of Hades where people would throw their children down into the water. Uh, and, and if they sunk, that means that it was an acceptable sacrifice. And Jesus says, I'll be that sacrifice. And, and I'll go into the ground. But the gate of Hades cannot hold me back. 
I will break forth. I will come through and I will come out with new life and life abundant for each and every person that would believe in me. He would conquer death and he would conquer hell. Revelation 1.17, Jesus said, I'm the one that holds the keys to death and hell. I'm the one that opens that up and allows people to be rescued from death and to have life. The earth could not hold him back. And it's our firm belief in Jesus as our firm foundation and a message to be proclaimed to the world. Isaiah 28, 16. The Lord says, Behold, I lay in Zion as a foundation, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Jesus is the one that that sets the trajectory of everything else that would take place for all of eternity, for each and every one of our lives, perfectly set in order. But it begins with us having a belief in who Jesus is. Because I will tell you, as we've learned from what we know about other faiths, they believe He existed, and I will tell you, there is nothing in Scripture that says that your belief in Jesus' existence will get you any further than the gates of hell. We need to believe in who He is, as to why He existed, And why he gave his life up on that cross. It's not even enough for you to believe that Jesus died on the cross. Most of the other faiths believe that as well. What you have to believe is the one on that cross is the one who takes away the sins of the world. The one that God the Father sent to this earth. The one perfect sacrifice. The Son of God. Holy and perfect who took the weight of the world, the sins of the world upon himself, and he went to that cross, and he went to that grave, and through his power, he conquered that grave, and came out and is able to give us life. And Scripture says, that's what we need to believe. You need to believe in the one who went to the cross, to believe in why the cross matters, why the empty grave matters as well. It's the foundation of everything, the identity of Jesus Christ. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You're the one that's chosen to take away the sins of the world. Jesus then talks about his reign and his rule, the dominion of Christ over all things. And he says to the disciples, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now again, what we need to understand is that he was not giving full authority to, to Peter to go, okay, you now have the ability and the, and the permission to say what's right and wrong for everybody in the world for, and those, the generations that come after you that serve in the position of overseeing the church also get to say uh, what goes and what doesn't go in Scripture anymore. That's not what Jesus is saying. Uh, the Word of God never changes. The truth never changes. God's expectations for us never changes. And nobody on earth is allowed to change it whatsoever. Not a jot or a tittle. So what is Jesus telling uh, the disciples at this time? Well, in Luke chapter 11, verse 52, Jesus is reprimanding the Pharisees and the lawmakers for all the, the stuff that they keep just bringing up and, and heaping onto the shoulders of people on how they're supposed to live. And Jesus says, woe to you, because you've taken away the key of knowledge from people. 
and, and you didn't even enter into it yourselves. The key to heaven uh, that Jesus is talking about, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, is the knowledge and the understanding of the statement that Peter had just made, that he is the Savior of the world, that he is the Messiah. And Jesus says, I'm giving you now the, the challenge, the commission, the permission to go out and you proclaim this message to everybody around the world because what you have is the ability to tell people about who I am that will unlock their ability to enter into a relationship with me and enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says it again in Matthew 18, 18. We'll get to this in a few weeks. He then says, so whatever you bind and loose, and when he's talking, he's talking to a, a whole group of disciples. So again, it's not just Peter that's going to decide what's right and wrong. Binding and loosing was the role of a rabbi. That's what they got to do. Whatever rabbi you followed as a disciple, a teacher, they would tell you, this is what's right, this is what's wrong. This is, this is what's bound for you, and this is what's this is permission. It's loosed for you. This is what how you're supposed to live, and the permission to do it. And what Jesus is, is saying, because we know with Jesus the law is no more. He's now the fulfillment of all of it. You know, what he's saying goes along with what, what he's already told Peter. Blessed are you because the Father has revealed to you everything that you need to know. And he says, as you go and as you preach this message of who I am and my identity, and as people follow after me, as you teach it and tell people now how this new way of living, understand that what you teach has been given to you from our Father in heaven. It's been, it, the binding and loosing has already been has taken place in heaven, and He's giving you the words that you need to teach people on how to live this new life following after me. And then, and then Jesus kind of finishes it up. He says, now, He's given them the most powerful truth that they, that they had heard yet. You can imagine their excitement, maybe even intimidated by it. And he says, but now don't go and tell anybody what we've just talked about. Again, we, we've been talking about this for a long time because his time had not yet come. People were going to have to figure it out for themselves as God revealed it to them. And, and the commission for the, the disciples to go out it wasn't time yet. Jesus' ministry on earth was not yet done. He says, so... So we're going to keep it quiet because I don't need this getting out. People are going to come after me even more. But know it, believe it, and live into it. I hope that we understand it. The identity of Christ is where it all begins. It's the bedrock. It's the cornerstone of our lives. It's the cornerstone of discipleship. It starts there. Who is Jesus? And the question that we have to ask ourselves today is, who's Jesus to me? Is he truly who he says he is? And do I believe it? Have I accepted it? And am I living into it? We are small stones, but we are important messengers of Christ. Together we make up the church that's called to go and to make disciples. And the more people who get to hear it, the key to the kingdom of heaven is opened up, and we live into it. And we get built up exactly the way that the Father designed it from the beginning. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for today and for your word. My prayer, God, has been and will continue to be 
that the word that we studied would be the thing that speaks to us the most. You're the one that reveals to us the knowledge and the ability to understand. So, Father, I, I just pray that as we leave here that we, wouldn't, that we wouldn't just let it be another message, but that we would truly understand, each and every person here today, that, that it all begins with the identity of Jesus. Our identity, as we here at Century say, that as disciples of Jesus Christ, we find our identity in Christ and Christ alone, that our identity would be connected to knowing and believing in who your Son truly is, the Anointed One that you sent to save us from ourselves, save us from sin, and to give us life abundant. Father, would you empower us now to go out with joy and with life abundant that we can take to the people around us but may it sink in, may it change us first that we're connected to you through your Son. We give you praise. We worship you. Amen.